Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores. And with us this week, we have Jason Torchinsky. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Very good, very good. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm an automotive journalist. I am co-founder of the new automotive website called The Autopian. Um, I used to be a writer at Jalopnik for about 10 years. Uh, I have a book out uh, called... I'm going to grab it. Oh, nice. Robot Take the Wheel uh, okay. about autonomous cars. And um, yeah, I, I write about all kinds of car stuff, a lot of minutia and ridiculous things and taillights and crazy crap like that. Interesting. Okay. Well, first of all, where, where are you? Because there is so much stuff in the background. <laughs> what, yeah. What? Um, I'm in, uh, so I'm in North Carolina, which is where I live and work. This is my, uh, it's like a basement office slash workshop. Yeah. Uh, so I've got, like this is an old Apple II C. There's an old Atari back there. I actually nice. put on a driving an old pole position game because I thought it would yeah, yeah. work well. And you know, I have like just you know, like I do a little projects here. I had um a background in uh art and uh so I build a lot of things. And then there's also like car parts back there and you know, there's some carburetors for my beetle are on that table there. Okay. Some wheels. Okay, so let's 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 wind back. How did you, I mean, how did you start this journey that sort of ended up here? Have you always been a bit of a car person? Um, yeah, how did you end up in the automotive space? Yeah, um, so I've, I have always been interested in cars. I don't, I didn't come from one of those families where I had like a dad who was super interested in cars or anything like that. Uh, my yeah. dad, you know, could barely staple. He was not interested in that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, he was a very different kind of guy. Uh, but he did have a car that I loved as a little kid. Like when I was really little, he had a 68 Beetle, a semi-automatic Beetle. And that was kind of like my gateway drug into uh, not just cars, but weird cars, because uh, I'm old, deeply old. And growing up in America in like the 70s and 80s, um, 
you know, where I was living, there weren't a whole lot of super interesting cars in the road. It was a lot of old Delta 88s and Honda Accords and things like that. So the Beetle was like the one car that really stood out and did things okay. differently. And that kind of got me interested in cars. And then I started to like do more research. You know, this is pre-internet. So I was going to the library <laughs> and I realized I had to get like travel books to find the really weird stuff. Like oh, okay. a book on Prague would show me like, holy crap, what's that? And then later I'd learn that's a... <laughs> That's a Skoda or that's a, you know, a rear engine Renault or something like that. Or a Tatra I saw in one tiny in a picture yeah. of like a big. So, you know, that's kind of what led me down the path of realizing I really like weird ass cars. <laughs> that is that sounds like such a such a more sort of interesting and like journey in in terms of tr- it sounds a bit more painful trying to find the stuff. But like, oh, there's a picture in that one book yeah. magazine well, of something and like no one knows easy. what it is i would you know so i always drew a lot and i was always like a, a kid who did a lot of drawing and stuff so i'd draw pictures of things i'd see and i'd have like like i remember vivid like i know what it is now but i remember in some book seeing the back of a renault um a 4cv you know the renault 4cv and it has a very distinctive or, or was it a 4cv or was it a fiat 600 i know but it was the one that had a yeah it was a fiat 600 it was a really distinctive rear engine car i could tell it was rear engine mm-hmm. I knew Beatles, but I just drew like the vent pattern on the back, which is very distinctive. And there was no Google image search or anything like that. So I just had this picture that I had, like I drew and I locked in my head. And then I would try to find it again and again in other places. And much later, I realized what the hell I was looking at. But um, (laughs) it wasn't easy. It was a pain. And you could like, you just had to keep digging. And there were, you know, the car books at local libraries were not great. There were, uh, you know, there were like some that would always show up. There was always like in the when I was a little kid, it was always like these books of like crazy hot rods and things. And, you know, they have that bathtub hot rod, which uh, the part uh, one of our partners, Bo Bachman, actually now owns. Uh, Bath- I, OK, so I'm going to miss all of these like American, I'm going to say references. The bathtub yeah. hot rod. What is this? Yeah, so there was a period in like the late sixties where people were making oh. absolutely bonkers hot rods. Oh, wow. Like deliberate like made four model kits, just <laughs> completely batshit. And one of them was a bathroom, basically. Its body was a bathtub. You would sit on a toilet to drive it. Um it was it was what was it called? It was called Oh yeah, there it is. There it is. Yeah, that yeah, that's it. What that's the one. So that this? that thing where it yeah, so yeah, that, um, I remember seeing that a billion times as a kid, and our partner <laughs> who who started the Autopian with David Tracy and I actually bought this and restored it. So that's that's oh, like meeting sick. I don't know, it's like meeting Superman. It's like you know reading about or something fictional, like you read about it as a kid and then it exists. So it's concrete. And okay, this looks like also it looks. Have you driven it around then? Not yet, but I'm going to. I in, in definitely plan to drive it. This looks, looks very super sketchy. Oh, they're all <laughs> like, sketchy. I've driven other hot rods of this era. They're not meant to be driven. They're sculptures. They're really okay. sculptures. And I've driven one that's like this fire truck one. And it's got the massive wide rear tires and tiny pizza cutter front tires and this ridiculous steering tiller thing. It's yeah. almost impossible to drive. It's terrifying. And this, I have both. Bath- What's that? Yeah, it looks super sketchy. And then the, yeah. this bathtub one, it looks like if you move your hand, like if you just let, you just turn around and point, you're going to stick your hand into fan belts and all Oh, yeah, yeah, of- 100%. Also, you notice I don't see any kind of radiator in that thing either. So even if you do drive it, you're dri- you're not driving it for long either. No, unless They're you terrifying. Know. 
And wow. you know, some, usually they have a big V8 in these things. So a lot of them have a lot of power, at least in short bursts, but yeah. like zero suspension, zero anything. They're absolute death traps. So, but, you know, they're not meant to, you know, you're not going to a little bit a of a, a drag machine. <laughs> not to like if 200 even. meters. Yeah, if even. If even. Okay, wow. That is that is some mental looking stuff. Yeah. Um and then right. So you said you are an artist. Did you is that was that the sort of what you started pursuing as a, a young person? Yeah. Um when I was a little kid, um I wanted to be like a cartoonist. Um I wanted to do uh, kind of art stuff. Um and so I did a lot of that and I always always did a lot of drawing. Um always you know like and that was always kind of my career path and then uh when i was a little bit older like around like i got like an apple IIe for my bar mitzvah so i got really into um uh, early 8-bit computers and programming and i still have a whole bunch that i do projects with even today actually um just because i really like the aesthetic of them and i like working with them and i'm you know apparently unwilling to learn anything after i turned <laughs> what? 13 what? what sort of thing can you do on those like, oh, no, you would be surprised. So, yeah. like, I okay. So, I've done um, like recently. Okay, so one project I did, like a couple years back. Uh, so, a university around here uh, for National Poetry Month, they had a bunch of uh, poets. They were doing stuff, and so I did a project with them where you know how on a computer every um, number, I'm sorry, every letter has an associated number, the ASCII code. Like A is like ninety six and whatever. So I didn't know. zero to yes, two fifty five. Okay. They all got it. So yeah. I had these poets. Uh, so I did. A, I had a little routine on this old Apple II that would play a tone, a musical tone based on a number zero to two fifty five. So I know nothing about music or really poetry, but I like the idea of both of them. So I told these poets, okay, you, I'm going to take you write a poem. I'm going to take every letter and translate it into a musical tone. So you guys have to figure out how to write something that both is intelligible as a poem and sounds music ish. Yeah. And so um, I wrote this program that did that. And then there we had like, there was like an event for this poetry month. And so I had loaded in all their poems and we, you know, the poets read them while these awful square wave tones were playing. And it, I can't say it was good, but it was fun. Uh, and so I did, I used it for that. And then I've done, um, I've done other, I've, yeah, I've done other, in, I did an installation actually. Uh, so actually with that computer playing pole position, I took an old Lancia and I made it look all 8-bitty. And then this was in an amphitheater at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And uh, we had it. So there's a giant screen in the amphitheater. And then I wired up the steering wheel and the pedals and the shifter to the controls of that old oh, Atari nice. computer. So you would sit in it and they would project this giant image of pole position on screen with pixels like, you know, this big. Yeah, yeah. And you would sit in this <laughs> pixelated car and you would actually drive. And it was like you were playing pole position. Um that sort of a game, wicked. but sort of an installation at the same time. Yeah. So I, a lot of the things I do are based on that. So I, I, and I worked with this uh, art collective when I lived in LA called Machine Project. And we did um, a lot of like weird, uh, weird things that I was able to work old computers and old tech mm. into. So a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the art I did involves like old obsolete technology I did a installation actually in the UK over in um, at the Arnold Feeney in Bristol. You know the Arnold Feeney Museum in Bristol. I've not come across it, but yeah. Well, it's a, it's an art museum in Bristol. Yeah. But I did an installation with another artist where um, I was working with audio tape, and I had gotten two reel-to-reel tape decks, and I had strung 
audio tape on these little 3D printed thimble reels all around the gallery. So one was recording and one was erasing. And these there was tape that was just all like just around <laughs> every single wall. It was fun. So I did a lot of stuff like that. Um, that art installation fun. wise. And it, a lot of old, old tech is just fun stuff to play with. That is cool. I, I like the sound. All of those sound pretty interesting to me the the making the music out of the um out of the poems did you mess with the 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 number order no i um try and like make it sound better no i did nothing to make it sound better it sounded (laughs) mostly terrible also the app the sound system on an apple II is about as crude as you can get it's not good by even at the time it wasn't good in 1988 it wasn't good uh, so it was just the harshest square waves. So this was a real, this was a real challenge for the for the poets. And the thing is, some of them pulled it off really well. Some of them actually, because I, I I wrote like a a thing where they could on an emulator, since I can't, you know, they don't have this this crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on an emulator, they could uh, try it out and play it. And some of them did a really good job. And I think that's create creatively. I think, and that goes back to why I like working with these old machines. Um, restrictions are what excite me like if you have like if you're a kid and you were given a full box of like 64 crayons it's almost impossible to figure out what to start drawing but if you're given three crayons whatever you've got will inform where you're gonna go and these old machines are that way too if your restrictions are really harsh you're going to figure out something interesting to to work around them so yeah i I like that a lot and you have to come up with like a pretty clean solution as well i guess yeah i mean there's only and, you know, the when you're working with old technology with all its limitations, the boundaries get more restrictive. So you don't get um, it's just easier in some ways to, like, get the scope of what you're trying to do. And I'm pretty sloppy in a lot of things. So, you know, people are more forgiving when they know the thing you're trying to do. Whatever <laughs> on it is. It's, it's yeah, 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 yeah. No. And then you get all the nostalgia and all of that stuff thrown in. Yeah. So you oh. so you. I was going to say one other piece I did that I was excited about is I made a giant Atari joystick, you know, the standard Atari yeah, yeah. joystick. I got in my bag, uh, but 15 times scale and it actually worked. So like oh, you nice. could, you could grab it and you know, <laughs> it was actually cool. I still have part of it back there. If you want me to bring out the giant stick part. I, that, I mean, that is wicked. That, that, I bet that's pretty fun to, and slightly yeah. hectic to try and use. Oh, it was, um, yeah, very difficult. It usually would take two people. Someone would be on top moving the giant stick, yeah. and someone would be mashing this gargantuan button thing. It sounds like a great sort of team-building exercise that yeah, some company would, would try and use. So you're you're making these, these sort of fun art, tech, combination projects. Um, and then at what point in time did you start sort of writing and getting involved yeah, so- in websites and stuff like that? So the, uh, so my path is a little weird. So, okay. So, um, in school, uh, I studied art history, um, cause I was, you know, very career minded. Um, <laughs> so I studied art history waiting for that curator boom. Um, yeah. and then I would, but I was also doing a lot of, um, uh, I did a lot of comedy. I did some stand up. I opened for George Carlin once back in the day, uh, and I used to do a lot of stand-up comedy and I had a sketch comedy group. So I did a lot of writing based on that. And I had like a column in, you know, and then in like high school and college, I did cartoons in the paper and I would write like humor columns. And mm. I continued doing that when I went to college and I, um, I started like a, a sketch group 
And uh, all the while I was learning like modern um, design programs and things like that for other things. So that, so design kind of became like official, like graphic design and interface design became my, like my main career. And then on the side, I was always doing uh, comedy stuff back in the zine era in the pre internet era. I we worked on a bunch of uh, zines and I worked with my friend, uh, Karen McLaren and the zine called stay free that ended up as a book. And it was kind of big for a while there. And I would write, funny things for that um i eventually got uh i worked for the onion uh as like an idea writer for the onions video arm um and i was doing so i was always doing a lot of like stand-up and sketch stuff and writing for like the onion like on the side while i was doing design work uh as my main job and then for a while i was uh we did uh, some game design as well. We made some like online games in the early online game era. Oh, nice. And I started a company uh, to do webcasting in like the early 2000s, kind of okay. before, like, sadly, we had no pandemics then. If we had a pandemic, yeah. I could have been loaded right now, <laughs> but we had no pandemics. We had great software. We had something that did like video and slides and polls and chatting and quizzes all integrated. It was like very pre-Zoom. And I think in some ways better than zoom but of course it was the internet wasn't exactly ready to handle that kind of thing I and i had to say a crap load of money uh oh. and that's you know in like that period so that's um that was you know so i was doing all that and that was um and then so after that period when i finally decided this isn't working out um mm. we uh my we my wife and i got we got pregnant sally got pregnant um and i realized i'm gonna have a kid and i didn't have have real health insurance. I didn't have any because I was just like a startup company and I didn't have yeah. any of that shit. And it was rapidly cratering. Uh, so I decided to take a job as a teacher. I was living in LA at the LAUSD. So I taught design at a high school. Um, it was the high school was actually uh, the old Ambassador Hotel where Robert Kennedy was shot, was actually okay. turned into a bunch of high schools. So yeah. um yeah, it was actually kind of, you know, it was in there in like the mid Wilshire area in LA. So I was teaching design at a high school and I kind of hated it. I mm. like, I liked teaching the kids who gave a shit, but the process of forcing kids to pay attention to things that they weren't interested in, I didn't like. And like having to police wearing of hats and things like okay. that in class, yeah. I just didn't, I just didn't like doing it. That, uh, I did. I did once raise a kid's letter, uh, kid, a whole letter grade higher for eating a big wad of wasabi. <laughs> on this uh, field we had the little Tokyo. He was a good that, kid, but he didn't work very hard. I thought he could deserve better, so I made him a yeah, deal. Yeah. He ate this like golf ball sized wad of wasabi. Kick him <laughs> up a whole letter grade. Nice. He did it too. To his credit, he he earned he earned that B or whatever yeah, the hell I, I gave Fair him. enough. Um, that that does sound like a particularly challenging part of teaching. Like I, I think most people is. probably get into teaching and go, Yeah, I quite like teaching people, blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, yeah. I enjoy this topic. And then you come across that and you're like Oh, that's the problem. I mean, the teaching part itself, I loved the actual process of helping a kid who's interested learn how to do something. Mm. And if a kid has a little talent and you can see it in that kid and you can help them find it, there were definitely kids like that in every class. But there were like 
maybe eight to 10 kids like that in a class of 30. And then you had 20 kids who could not give a shit. And the process of trying to just get them to do anything and to deal with their idiotic ways that they would try to cheat or like, you know, it was, it's a computer class. So when kids turn in the same project and it's clearly the same file with a file (laughs) name change, it's like, come on, I can tell I'm not an idiot. And I, I had like a setup where, there's a classroom of Max, and as the teacher, I could like see everybody's screen, and I had like an overhead projector, so yeah. it was fun. If some kid was like searching for something embarrassing, I could just throw it <laughs> up on the screen, and you could see, you know, who had all the STDs or whatever. Nice. Or kids, or you know, they would use like the camera on there to like do makeup and stuff, and I would yeah, just yeah, yeah. put it up on the big screen. <laughs> I mean, it was fun to some degree, but I also kind of hated it, and that's when I yeah. start. I realized. Um, auto journalism is this thing because i kind of found out about the whole idea of auto journalism so before i was doing this i wrote a little i was doing freelance writing as well and there's a magazine called make that's a great magazine um and my friend mark frauenfelder uh he was one of the editors over at make and i thought it would be cool to do a make episode about uh so there's a race for 500 hundred dollar or cheaper cars in america called the 24 hours of lemons oh yeah and yeah, so I entered that. I wanted to put a team together that race. So I got make to sponsor me to put together a car for that race. And um, so we put together uh, our car and I got a little team together and we wrote an article about it and ran the race. And when I was doing that race, I you know started realizing I met a whole bunch of people in the auto journalism business. Mm. And even before that, um, I had bought an interesting car. I had so I, a British car, actually, uh, a Reliant Scimitar, you know, Reliance. Uh, yes vaguely in, yeah they you know they're known for like their three wheelers but they're quite uh, so cool I looking things Reliant what's that i would say they're, they're uh, yeah, quite they're cool looking cool. things it was a shooting brake i mean it was a very cool car i had an old volvo p1800 that uh, i had driven for a while and then i had traded it for a scimitar yeah there is mine was yellow mm. also so it was just like that guy up there and I loved this thing. So I, I drove around this scimitar a lot. And then someone from Jalopnik, Johnny Lieberman, actually came out to um, to see my car uh, and do a little story on it. So I realized there's people who are making their livings driving yeah. interesting cars and, and <laughs> writing about cars. And then when I entered the Lemons race, I encountered all these other automotive journalists who were making a living writing about cars. And that just got in my head as I was waking up every morning to go to my teaching job that I did not like. And I'd be in the shower thinking, I got to find something else to do. And so um, I got a side gig from someone I knew at Jalopnik, uh, Murali Martin, that's his pen name. But so I got a side gig from him writing uh, a column at Auto Auto Week. It was like a, uh, I would write like bi-weekly column. And I only did that for one month before the editor of Jalopnik at the time, Ray Wirt, uh, reached out to me. And wanted to see if I wanted to try uh, writing at Jalopnik, and uh, it was it was like in the December of 2011 because it was winter break, and so it sucks when you're a teacher in America. I don't know how it is in the UK, but we treat them like garbage in America. And so you know, over like breaks like summer, there's no pay. You just have to figure um, out what. That ex- yeah, you don't get paid <laughs> in the summer. Like over the summer break, they're just like, mm, have a good time, tough shit, and you get no paychecks oh, wow. for two months. So. I was keeping things going. Like I had gotten these big art commissions. Uh, I got a big art commission like one year 
when I was a teacher and I did these giant space invader statues that appeared in uh, Color City. So that covered me for like one summer. And then that next summer was coming up and I realized I don't have anything. And I haven't been good about like parceling out my money because you're not making yeah. that much money to begin with. So it's just, it's a raw, we treat teachers terribly. So if there's yeah, any takeaway from right. this, just pay your <laughs> teachers better, America. Uh, so yeah, when he offered me a gig over the winter break, I was like, okay, this could be useful. And then it was like a trial basis thing. And then after that, they decided they, they wanted to hire me. Cause I, I wrote a couple of things that went, um, kind of big. I wrote this thing about, uh, how Pixar, you know, the cars in the Pixar movie cars, the eyes mm. should be the headlights and not the windshield. And that actually blew up a lot because for one thing, it's true. And there's a lot of just Pixar stands who just couldn't get it through their heads. So it caused a lot of controversy and that's posted really well. And then they hired me and then I stayed there for 10 years. Wow. And and I had a little, I've had a bit of a look through um, because I like Jalopnik. There's, it's a website I've sort of known about for a while. Um, a long time ago, I used to sort of submit photos for the, I can't remember what they were called. It was like the wallpapers. And there was like one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. The most amazing blah, 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 blah of a blah, so, blah, blah. Yeah, well, yeah right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of hyperbole in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like yeah. an average photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the back half of like a, a Festiva. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, but it, it was a website that's like so different to stuff we have in the UK. Now, I, I'm not aware, there might be one I'm not know about, but like, they just sort of take the piss attitude in a sort of large platform size in the automotive space. We don't really have one in the UK. Um, everything's a bit serious. Yeah, well, I guess he had Top Gear, which was kind of an inspiration for a lot of Americans for some degree of piss taking. Yeah. Um, like a little but, bit, but a little as bit. a website, yeah, no, that's that's what made Jal- that's what I loved about Jalopnik, and that's what I I did a lot of that at Jalopnik. I would write, um, I especially love writing like uh, if if uh, Bugatti or uh, Rolls Royce or any of those companies had something released and they had like a press release, I love just referring to them as like piles of crap, <laughs> like just like really <laughs> lay into like a, and you know it's an eight million dollar Bugatti or whatever yeah. it was. Clearly, it's not really a pile of crap, but they would still get mad and send like pissy letters back to us. <laughs> like, did you really mean to refer to us as like you know a steaming heap? Like, yeah, I mean they can take it. You're fine. You're Bugatti. Yeah, you're not gonna have your reputation ruined by me messing with you. But I would do that a lot, and it was a lot of fun. Um, How? How do you go about coming up with the ideas for these posts? Like, this, I mean, there's. If I, yeah. I just had a little look through, and you have posts on absolutely everything. Yeah, I wrote. Oh, so over my time at Jalopnik, I wrote over 6,700 posts, about three a day for 10 years, roughly. And I, and the, you're, you're kind of hit the nail on the head there, and that's the. You write about absolutely everything. Like as soon as I realized there is no detail too small, too fussy, too ridiculous for me not to decide to write about it. If it's automotive and it caught my interest, good enough for me. And I learned (laughs) if you're enthusiastic about something, you can translate that enthusiasm to the readers. And biggest example I can think of this is for some reason, there's not a good reason why i love taillights i love okay. taillights there's something that no 
I've written so many stories that if I had to actually pitch them to an editor, there is no way in hell the editor would say, absolutely, let's run with it. The public needs to know why this beetle taillight is not like every other beetle taillight. Like, they would never fly. But people will read these things. If you get super excited because in Italy and Australia for one year, there's a one-year-only Beale taillight that looks like none others. And if you, if I can convey the genuine <laughs> fucked up excitement that I felt, then people will feel it too. And you'd be stunned by the kinds of minutia that you can get people interested in. Like anything, door handles and taillights and side marker lamps and weird dash clusters. And, and it's all interesting. And um, like, was yeah. that in your sort of description as a, a writer? Like, I get obsessively whatever about taillights. I feel like that I think, was. I think I include it now occasionally, like in Twitter yeah. bios and stuff, because it's kind of associated with me. So now, anytime there's an interesting taillight thing, I'll get a billion messages on like Twitter or whatever. Like, you know, or if a new car comes out, people want to know my take on, on the taillights. The, the and the crazy thing is, I have opinions on these taillights. I do give well, a damn. See, I, I had a look at this and came across uh, a post on the Autopia, which we'll get to mm-hmm. in a minute. Sure. Um, and it's it like, what was it? How Lamborghini completely half-assed the lights on its most legendary supercar. Yeah, Lamborghini they did. Lamborghini Countach. Yeah. Um, and then like I'm scrolling down. I'm like, what is this? Like, Let's have a look. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then I see the pictures of the Countach and then you're like, oh, here's some the sketches of what it should have looked like and then what it does look like and then your breakdown of how how they've gone about it and you're like oh yeah interesting yeah, they grab them off an alfetta and then they just put a crap like a plastic like they you saw in the prototype the shape they wanted it was yeah. this kind of trapezoid thing very dramatic that is not at all the taillight they picked they picked three blocks and then they just made a plastic <laughs> piece to like hope you're not going to look at it too carefully and from a distance okay and then they got rid of that plastic piece and the other one is just a block and then in the front where they have the turn indicators they have this beautiful like it's like a sloping piece of glass and then there's the shittiest like part shelf like trailer light just jammed up in there it's it's a supercar it's a Countach like spend the money <laughs> like people notice these things i think i don't know they get away with it but I think that's this is probably a, a classic situation of when you look at now, like, I don't know, Porsche or VW or whatever, and you take a car, let's say a VW Polo, they've spent so much money on like a button or the oh, door yeah. handle or whatever. And lights cost an obscene amount to make. But when you're yeah. someone like Lamborghini and you're like making a bespoke car that you're only going to sell whatever, a couple yeah. hundred of. Like <laughs> they just search Corners all of the parts catalogs. And it's crazy because like, it, it just doesn't, you know, it's hard to get that. Like we understand why making a light has regulations and it's an incredibly expensive thing. And if you're low volume, it doesn't make sense. But at the same time, if you're buying a car as expensive as a Countach and it's coming out with lights that are either like out of a parts catalog or for some little econo box, it's weird. That's a weird yeah. dichotomy to kind of try to reconcile. Uh, and it's always something that's fascinated me. I love that actually. Modern cars this, also, I'm just saying, the things that they got away with in the past, there's so many things that, uh, whatever happened, our standards are so high right now. Mm. Like when I was growing up, one of the most popular cars uh, on the road were these GM mid full size cars. And they were on the four door ones, and the wagons, the sedans, all of them, the backs, the side windows, and the rear doors would not roll down. 
And a lot of the <laughs> people were too cheap to buy air conditioning back in like the day. Nobody would stand for that today. Kids would just suffocate and pass yeah. out in the back of these things because you couldn't roll the window down in a family car that you're going to cram like five or six people in. And that's the kind of thing like where GM was like, hey, it's fine. And people yeah. bought them and it was fine. And there is no way in hell people would go for that today. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's mad. It's mad that it's taken all this time, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of the things at the moment people moan about, definitely in the UK, it, not massively, but it, it's moaned about how cars have become so expensive. Like all cars yeah. are so expensive. When True. you compare whatever, new anything compared to older version of that thing. Right. But when you look at what you get in a car now, especially yeah. with all these, we have loads of, regulations coming in where you're going to have to have adaptive cruise control and you've all got to have air con and whatever and you're like yeah no shit sherlock like this car yeah. is significantly more advanced like it's a really Every, budget the bottom of the line of car. car oh yeah i mean we drove absolute garbage and we were happy with it but it was compared to modern cars just garbage i mean there were advantages they were way easier to work on way easier to keep going but they were death traps. I mean, I, the cars I drive, I have, so like my fleet of cars right now is I got an old Beetle. Well, the carbs are off it, but I have an old yeah. Beetle and it needs work right now. I've got a Yugo, which is, of course, Oh, crap. nice. Yeah, but I do like driving it. It's actually my highest horsepower car of the ones I usually drive because it's 67. And I have okay. a Nissan Pal. You know the Pal, the Pike car? Um, no, P-A-O. Nissan Pow. It was it's like a micro with a different body. It's very fun and cool. That's my um that's oh, okay. my daily most reliable car. Uh but I um I just I hit a deer in it and I just got oh, the dear. body work done, but there's a cooling problem. PAO. 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 Okay. Oh yeah, poor. It's very different. You're gonna see the difference here. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I've got one of those. Um, and I love it. And that, you know, it's, it, it makes 53 horsepower, but of course it is, if I get hit in that thing, I'm you know, gone by a monitor. Yeah. I mean, it's a death trap and everything I drive is technically that way. So my pal is the most advanced of the one I have of the cars, but. And what year uh, was that made in? 90. <laughs> no, not, okay. yeah, 90. That's 1990. Have... Yeah, they're very retro looking, but it's, um. It's, does it have uh, like a surprising amount of space inside? It does actually. I put a lawnmower in the back of that thing, and it's got a tailgate design, so it's not a hatch. Like the it like drops down like a truck tailgate, and then the oh, glass nice. flips up. I love it actually. I put a canoe on the roof of that thing. I take my kid everywhere in it. I love it. Oh, and I've also got a. Uh, I have the cheapest car in the world. Um, I have a a a Chang Lee. It's a it's a Chinese car I ordered <laughs> online from uh, off Alibaba. And it $930 plus 300 for the battery. So 1200 bucks for the car. It's a little electric car, (laughs) 1.1 horsepower. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Right. Let me find this. I've got a picture. Yeah. Chang Lee. If you Google Chang Lee, you'll see mine. It's and 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 how, um, how much did it cost? Okay. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. There I, yeah. You can see me standing next to it right there. Oh Um, yeah. 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 Oh wow. uh, Nice stickers. Yeah. It's, uh, it was, so it was $930 for the car itself. You have to pay 300 for the batteries. So 1200 bucks basically for the car itself. Yeah. By the time I got it shipped to America, it came to like three grand, but it's, and the thing is it, it's so much better than it has any right to be. It has a backup camera. 
It's actually what? got a backup. What? Yes, it has a backup camera. That body is all steel. There's curved glass. There's it's so much. It's got a real differential. It's so it should be absolute garbage, but it just isn't. It's built way way better than a twelve hundred dollar new car has any right to be. So you know, of course, it's only one point one horsepower. Yeah, there you go. that's mine right there. And it uh, goes about twenty seven miles on a charge. Top speed is about twenty five. I've had it on a track, uh, so oh, I can nice, confirm. Nice. Yeah, on the flat, you can just about get it to twenty five. But I live in like a college town. And in where I live, it's legal to drive it on the roads for 35 miles an hour or less. It can be, it's classified as okay. like a neighborhood electric vehicle. So where I live within like two or three miles of my house is like a grocery store, my kids school, my kids friends. And, and yeah. you know, like I could get takeout and I drive this thing almost every day, just around town. And I kind of love it because it's, you could park it anywhere you can just jam it in whatever little space yeah. between two cars like they wanted people to do with smart cars but no one ever did and i love that thing so yeah i drive i drive that thing too but that looks hilarious is it longer than a, a smart car no it's a little bit shorter actually it's a little bit so shorter. you could so you can do the park the wrong you, way around you, you know it's inside a spot and you're not sticking out into the road at all i do that all <laughs> the time and like, cause I, you know, this college town, like the little downtown area can be kind of crowded. Like you go out with a yeah. friend for a drink, everybody's circling around looking for a spot. Not me. I just shove it in behind a dumpster or between two cars and, and I'm set. I love it. It's great. That is so good. I can't, but that is amazing that you can buy, yeah. I mean, even just being able to buy a car off Alibaba is hilarious. But I, oh, yeah. I've it not... came in a giant cardboard box, which I is just like, boom, done. Well, it was like, yeah, it got shipped to a port. It had like a, a cage around it, which they took off, but it was basically in a cardboard box. So we just shoved it in the back of my friend, David Tracy, my partner's pickup truck. And he, um, and we drove it to the, uh, to my house. And then we just, there's actually a whole unboxing video where I'm just tearing the cardboard off. Nice. There's a, a car inside. And, then and in just... China, they're called, uh, old man happy cars. And okay. they're for like grandpas to like pick up stuff from the market and their kids. Yeah, yeah. And they're illegal in some of the bigger cities and it's like a gray area, but there's a ton of them. Yeah, because I, I remember seeing something definitely not as substantial, but it looked like a little car that generally you'd see maybe an old person mooching yeah. around in, but often yep. kind of like a bit like a motorbike, but with yeah. a full cage situation. Yeah. How much does it weigh? Uh, about 800, just under 900 pounds, I think. 800 and something pounds, roughly. No idea what that is in kilos. Oh, uh, and um, I don't know. Do I have to convert it to stone? <laughs> no, we, no, stone is not a weird, weird thing. So it's 408 kilos That's for the, okay, for the listeners over here. But um, yeah, we. I was talking to someone about this the other day. I don't understand why. And I don't know. Do you have a similar sort of thing? If we're doing height, we'll yeah. do feet and inches. Really, but, but I also know centimeters because I, I feel like that's actually slightly. Oh, more and useful. you guys but still do you do miles per hour still too, right? We do miles per hour, but not kilometers. But, and then no, so Europe kilometers. Um, yeah. But and then um, and weights. Everything I think is is generally kilos, right. apart from human weights, like of a human. <laughs> it's stone, and then pounds. <laughs> And it's all so occasionally weird. people do kilos. It's really weird. It's I mean, like, we're worse. The fact that the U.S. does no metric stuff when objectively 
the way we like the old English system is ridiculous. Like five thousand <laughs> seven hundred whatever feet in a mile is absurd. Why why are we trying to remember that when metric just makes so much damn sense? I don't understand. When I was a kid in the eighties, it was always taught to us like next year we're going metric. Like this is <laughs> like get ready, kids. Like because it's going to happen, and then it just never never did because. I don't know why. It's lazy. An, an endless issue of pick my I come across like a hex bolt or something. And it's oh, like yeah. is it a metric or a imperial? And you're like, how am I meant to know? Like by looking at it, you just assume have, it's here, it's metric. All my sockets and whatever, you you just have two sets. You've just got an, an, an English imperial and metric. And most of my cars are foreign so most of them are metric but every now and then but i have like an old rv i have like a dodge rv and that's all in you know imperial and it's uh yeah it's an ass pain <laughs> I, don't know why, yeah, I don't know why we can't figure this out like there's so many things that should be standardized that we're not it would it would make life a lot lot, yeah. lot easier. electrical plugs i mean all kinds of things it's just yeah it's, yeah it's, electrical plugs that's such yeah. a weird one it's like how many it's like a century and a half we're pushing two centuries well let's see like late 1800s you know uh you probably get widespread electrical use and we still haven't standardized on a global plug like why the hell not us could go to 220 we'd be fine everybody be fine with like why don't we just standardize one nice plug you do have good plugs in the uk they're bulky but they are substantial like and they have a fuse in them right like yeah. with the big fat three, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Whenever I use an American style plug, sometimes there's sparks. Sometimes yeah, yeah. Like, no, all the stuff. Shit. I mean, it's amazing. Like I remember as a kid. <laughs> so if you like, if you pull the plug out from the wall by a little bit, and you can leave a gap of yeah. the two metal prongs. I remember as a kid, like being bored doing homework and pulling it like a lamp plug out of the wall and just taking a penny and just dropping it. Just a massive flash of light. Yeah, just shorted out everything. <laughs> like you shouldn't be able to do that. It shouldn't be that easy. And if like, so now we've got people have electric cars. You have a little electric car. Mm -hmm. Does that plug into, I would say a normal three pin, but you know, a normal. That's just a normal, yeah. In US 110 volt, just regular three prong outlet. And because it's US 110 versus here, we have 240. um, And I don't know what ampage or whatever that is, but presumably, can you charge nowhere near as fast as we could hit well or is it not quite like that it's i mean it's so the u.s is a little weird like we kind of have secret 240 uh because we got <laughs> 240 coming into the house but it gets split into in the outlets as 120 or i always say 110 yeah. but it, it technically 120 at the outlet um so we and you know like things like dryers and like large equipment and in houses in america will be 220 powered uh, but the wall outlets aren't and our amperage is a i think it comes out close you can probably because i think the amperage we're like let's see where we're at 60 hertz and you guys are 50 hertz i can't remember what the amps are i don't know but i think it may be a little it's probably a little more efficient to have a 220 outlet but all the ev i don't know ev shells are, we don't even have a standard charger for evs like no you know tesla has their well, own charger and then I mean, there's like do. three different <laughs> other kinds but you don't What's that? Like Teslas in the UK are, are the same charger as all the other cars. Yeah, not in America. <laughs> like in America, they have their own because we, I don't know, because we're fiercely independent. 
we're idiots. Like we do, it, yeah. And like in, in I, the in the EU, don't they didn't they make Apple have to change the little uh, the like proprietary port to USB C now? Don't something like that. I don't think that was I don't think that was an EU thing. Um, but it, it might have been. It would have been exceptionally useful if that sort of thing came in. Yeah, it should just be one damn plug. I, I could do like one high voltage plug, one low voltage plug, and would my life be worse? No, it'd be fine. I could be f- just fine. Yeah, that'd be so. So hang on. So in your house, if you've got a yes. dryer or a washing machine or whatever, is that yeah. separately wired in than a normal anything? You know, a light or whatever. Well, it's so out of the the transformer box that leads to your house is two forty into the house. Um, yeah. There's, but there, you basically have two different circuits. So there's basically special 220 outlets that are just for that kind of equipment. So not, you couldn't just plug it. Every, yeah, there's like, so there's special outlets just for that stuff, usually in like a garage or like a laundry room. In my house, there were, in my house is weird. Like in our living room, we have one, two, 220 outlet behind the couch, which we think someone had put in for a, a, a window air conditioner before the house had central okay. air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still there. So if I really wanted to run an arc welder in my living room, I could just plug it in there. It would be great. But, yeah, it's yeah. so there's basically two kinds of outlets. And um, you're going to have, like, 90% 110 outlets and yeah. then, like, a small fraction of these two 220 outlets in your house. That is incredibly So in theory, you guys can plug in a, you can plug in a dryer anywhere you want, right? Anything, anywhere. You could charge, like I could charge my electric car from any plug in the house anywhere, and it would come out. Cannot do that in America. Yeah, like there's, (laughs) you have to have special. Usually, you have to have like a special outlet wired up in your garage. Holy shit! I didn't realize how good you guys had it there. You just plug it in anywhere. I I can't believe how bad you've got it in terms of just yeah, we're animals. Plug something into a wall. We're absolute animals. (laughs) Barely living. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So you're writing for Jalopnik. You're smashing out yes. like three articles a day. How, yep. I mean, where, where do you get your ideas? Do you like go, okay, I need to sit down and research a bunch of stuff or you just do life and then ideas come? Because that's a it's lot of usually, articles. Yeah, it's a lot of, I mean, I, I'm just always, I'm aware of car things a lot. So I'm just paying attention. So, and the, the big trick I learned is always have somewhere to write the ideas down because you won't remember them. So I'll, yeah. so I'll walk by a car and something will strike me about that car. And I think, huh. And so I'll write it down in uh, usually like I, right now we use like Slack for our messaging and I just use my own, uh, like you have your own little channel. What I like about yeah. that is it, I can put it in my phone and then I have access to it in my computer. Like the yeah. trick is write it somewhere where you can get it everywhere. I used to write yeah, on paper, yeah, yeah. but you'd lose it or wash it in your pants or whatever. And that doesn't work. Yeah. So I write it down. And also I do a lot of, uh, like old books are great. Like I get a lot of books from like thrift stores and things like that. Mm. And there's still lots of things in the world that aren't on the internet and you can learn and they, and everything leads, like everything leads to paths. Like you learn about something, you'll see a name and then you'll look up that name and it'll lead to a whole other weird path. And then before you know it, you've hit something else. Like for example, cross pollinating your interests works really well too. I just wrote an article for the Autopian about how the guy who designed the Jeep Wagoneer was the same dude who was responsible for arcade video games, basically. Oh, really? Like, so wow. a guy, guy named Dave Nutting, 
he worked for Brooke Stevens, who was the design house that worked for with AMC Nash to design cars. And it was his idea to come up with the idea of the Wagoneer, which is really in a lot of ways the template for the modern SUV, where you say, basically, let's take a four by four truck chassis, put a station wagon like body on it, but make it a little taller and make it luxurious. That's basically 90 percent of the car market in America mm. right now. And it was all this guy, Dave Nutting's idea. He also was working, building um, like coin operated, like quiz machines and things like that. And then Nolan Bushnell, the guy who founded Atari came to him and they worked together to make the first actual stand-up arcade video game called computer space, which was built under Dave Nutting's company. And then, you know, they went on to found Atari, but this same dude, one dude did these two wildly different things. And it was, you know, so like, just noting things like that and seeing like Dave Nutting's name in one place and then remembering, wait a minute, I've seen that name before yeah. and then digging through and then boom, you've got an article that's interesting. And, you know, yeah. so like, you know, you just, you just gotta be, your mind just always has to be open. And the thing is you can force so many things into a car context if you really want to, like you find something interesting and if you dig hard enough, you're going to find something related to cars involved. Yeah, in yeah, it yeah. Somewhere. And I guess the beauty of the platforms that you were putting it out onto is the it, it it it's not one article a month, so therefore it has to right. be some massive, big, all-encompassing, super interesting for everyone article. It's exactly. Like, no, I'm making lots of the content. Each one has some interesting exactly. stuff in it, but I can follow all of these crazy avenues. So yeah. you must have like learnt and discovered so much stuff over that number of articles. Do you even remember the things that you did way back when? Or <laughs> sometimes I do, and sometimes I'll Google something, and I realize, oh, holy shit, I wrote about that like eight <laughs> years ago. Yeah, so like that does happen sometimes, especially for like little obscure cards. I'll like find something, like what the hell is this thing, and I'll be all delighted, and I'll Google it, and I was, oh yeah, I wrote about that already. <laughs> so I mean, that is a thing that happens. I don't remember everything, but I remember, you know, you'd be yeah. surprised how much actually sticks in there. It's, yeah, uh, well, I guess if you devote enough time, and one of the things that people always say about remembering stuff is writing it down. Well, writing an article yeah. is another level because you've got to research it and then refine it and whatever, put yeah. it in. So I guess it is, it's going to stick. So you were at Jalopnik for, was it 10 years or something like that? 10 years, basically at 20, yeah, like a late 2011, maybe a little bit over. And then I left to found the Autopian uh, this, this year. I left to Jalopnik in February. And what spurred that change? So there's a couple of things. Um, look, they gave me complete freedom at Jalopnik. I could write big articles, smart articles, everything. Like no one even, I didn't have to pitch anything for years. I, I had complete freedom. I loved working at Jalopnik. I loved the people I worked with. That was great. But um, I fundamentally wasn't in control of how the site worked or looked. And it was getting more and more cluttered with ads. People were complaining a lot about the finding stories, how it was running on their phone. They just, it was to a point where they couldn't comfortably see the work I was doing. And that was yeah. starting to bother me. Um, and I have no say in that and how they were, you know, cause they, it was sold. If you go started as a Gawker site and then there was the whole Hulk Hogan thing and the Peter Thiel thing. And then it got sold to Univision and then it got bought by, um, the current owners now who's geo media and you know, geo media is a company who they want to make money fundamentally. You can't fault them for that. That's yeah. the whole point of it. Uh, but that also just meant a lot of decisions that I don't think I would have chosen if I were in charge. 
And they also did something where they started hiding the images on a lot of articles after a certain point so they wouldn't have to deal with potential rights issues. Uh, oh. And that bothered me because it meant years and years of work I had done. Because I do, I, I pay, as a designer and artist, I pay a lot of attention to the visual look of what I put out. I don't just write stories. I make sure they look cool. And I'll often do hand drawings for things. So yeah. because of this blanket policy where they were just going to hide these images for all these articles, that's a lot of work I had done that is going to be much more difficult for people to see. And I, that just reminded me, I don't own any of that stuff. All those 6,700 articles I wrote yeah. are not really mine anymore. And um, that's kind of an alarming thing. That's a lot of person. And it's not like I'm writing news stories. I'm writing my ideas about things yeah. by and large, some of it are news and some of it are whatever, but a lot of these things I did are like goofball ideas I came up with and put on paper. Like if squids ruled the earth, what their cars would be like, for example, and they're drawing. <laughs> so when these images started to disappear, I realized, you know what? I don't think this is sustainable. I can't yeah. put all this effort into something that fundamentally I have no, no ownership of. Um, so and what was the what was the yeah. reason for you're saying copyright issues but as a sort of newsy type website are you not allowed to use images as like commentary anyway I think we are the problem is it's none of that's super clear um okay. and I think instead of taking the time to really it felt like a, a sloppy solution so yeah. it's like just to avoid any trouble they just hid all these images for all these articles past a certain point and you know that includes stuff that maybe was not properly cited in places. Yeah. I don't know, but it also included a lot of stuff that I myself had drawn or made uh, yeah. graphically for that site that I a hundred percent know was not stolen because I made them. That's most of what I did, and it didn't matter. They didn't go through and try to flag yeah. the ones that were okay. They just hid them all, and um, I didn't like that idea. You know, that was just that, it. Just didn't feel right. So I mean, it, that's yeah. That is a tricky situation for you yeah. specifically like you i remember someone said to me a, a long time ago um and i paid some attention and not much attention and it wasn't massively applicable but if you're writing stuff and you're on a platform that you don't have control of one day someone could it could go under someone could yep. change this situation which has happened to you or yep. you know all these sorts of things happen and then all the stuff you've written has gone and yeah Exactly. Like, that's a large like, body. That's your body of work, your creative work. That is potentially not something you have control over. Could you're right. It could disappear. They could go under and just shelve all that stuff and it's just gone. And uh, that's an alarming thing for the amount of yeah. work that gets put in. So, you know, there was that. And, you know, we just wanted, and we had a lot of ideas about how we'd like a site run. And David, so David Tracy is another longtime writer at Jalopnik. He's an ex engineer, very technical, great guy. Uh, he and I always got on really well. We did a lot of stuff together and we were a good mix. I'm kind of in the arty goofball side. He is from the more rational engineer side. Um, and so together we kind of formed a pretty decent whole. Um, so we decided we're going to try to start our own website and, um, but, you know, uh, money is a big deal. So we, I, you know, neither of us are in a position where we could just ride on savings or whatever. We just weren't there. Uh, so we were, you know, we were talking to different uh, venture firms and things like that. None of them sounded that great. Um, we looked into getting loans, but it all, and I, you know, from my past, I've started companies on a shoestring budget and I know how stressful and hard that is. And I didn't really want to do that again because it's it's just hard to make the quality we wanted. So thankfully, yeah. uh, 
my friend um, Bo Bachman, who actually I had write the uh, he wrote the uh, preface to my book here. He uh, he's the guy who runs a very large dealer network in America called Galpin Auto. Um, and they have a, they're like the biggest Ford dealer in America. He also was on pimp my ride. He has uh, Gallup and auto sports like he, and he's a guy who just loves cars. And I, and I've yeah. been corresponding with him for a long time. Cause he shares an interest in weird cars that I have. So sometimes I'll find some strange car and uh, I would have written about it. And Bo would have sought actually physically went out and bought an example of that car. Oh, nice. So nice. based on things I'd written so, and he, his car tastes are kind of parallel to mine in a lot of ways. He's got his own other interests, but he just likes some weird, interesting stuff. And we met years ago at a, like an event and hit it off. And I'd done some research for him for various TV shows that he's done. So I realized, well, David and I want to do this. And we thought both might be interested in this. And he actually was because he kind of wanted to be getting into a, like a media space. And he, um, he kind of had the same complaints about Jalopnik that a lot of people had. And he just had a very similar vision. So thanks to Bo, we were able to uh, put together a real company. And, um, you know, and th this was like uh, like late, you know, we started talking about it, um, you know, like I guess late last year. And then, you know, like it kind of got real. And then we, David and I uh, left Jalopnik in February. And then we really worked to get this thing together. And um, yeah, and so now we've got, you know, so now there's the Autopian, which is, Basically, David and I are the co. David's technically the editor in chief because I hate doing that stuff, but we kind of run the tone of the site. Um, right now, we're still small. It's basically David and I are the only full timers. We have one basically full timer, Thomas Hundle, who does a lot of writing for us, and we're trying to hire more people. But we've mm -hmm. got a great set of freelancers. Like one of the things we wanted to do was get experts, like real, like not journalists. We wanted people who were actual car designers, actual yeah. engineers, actual people in the industry. And so we have a really strong stable of designers and engineers and other people who actually know what they're talking about, who are writing for us on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, car museums have like a regular column with us. We've got a designer who will take your crazy ideas and draw them. We have a designer who has to stay anonymous because he works for an OEM who writes all <laughs> kinds of great insidery things about the car business. We have... The guy who was the lead engineer on the, on the Ford GT wrote about how badly he screwed up one crucial part. <laughs> you never see like that kind of thing on other sites. That's super like cool. where the literal engineer who was responsible for a recall of the halo car of one of the biggest car companies is writing like, I, I screwed this up and he just a full mea culpa. And it was a fascinating article. So it's uh we're getting the site that we think the readers really want and that we personally just want to read. And it's, it's been great. A crap ton of work, but it's been great. That sounds, that is a really interesting take. We've seen, we're starting to see a little bit of that um, over here. There's a, you've probably come across it. it well, maybe it's, and it, it started as an Instagram account called uh, The Intercooler, or it was, it was Drive Nation first, and now it's called The Intercooler with Andrew Frank. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool. And uh, Dan Prosser. But they've yeah. sort of started doing a similar thing of getting some, some actual industry people. But that sounds, that is absolutely the way to do it. Because for so long, we've had journalists writing about stuff that, they might know a lot about but actually yeah. it's not the same as having a designer an engineer a, a racing driver a, a whatever yeah. you know someone who's it's their profession and they're yes. sharing some writing about it um, and they have and lifetimes of experiences yeah and it's like we started like uh, our engineer like our main engineer writer um hubert mees he's a retired engineer who worked for ford and tesla and uh jaguar and like so he he has a lifetime of experience and now he's writing because he just wants to which is the best possible situation he just he has interesting stories and he wants to tell people about him because he likes this stuff he cares he loves the interaction with the the commenters and that's the kind of community we want to build we want to make it so in one interview i compared it to the the protestant reformation in the sense of like um you're getting rid of the intermediaries. <laughs> like yeah. there's, there's, you know, there's no more, you, you don't have to go through a journalist to get to the source of things. So it's yeah. just commoners can ask the guy who designed the Ford GT himself in an article, why did you make this decision? And they'll get an answer. And I, that kind of thing I love. And then, you know, we're the community at Jalopnik was extremely strong and a big part of why we like to do this. And we want to build up as much of that as possible so the comment section is as important as the top section with the mm. article. Like people's discussions are important. Uh, us interacting with the with the commenters is important. David and I, just because of how busy we've been trying to get this going, haven't been able to interact quite as much. But we've been trying like once a week we do like at the end of the week, we've done like a how's it going column. How are we doing? And then we really try to pay attention to what people want. Yeah. Um, you know, even at the beginning, people complained about the typeface, for example. So we just changed it you know we like we're gonna listen and pay attention um we also have almost no ads right now which can't stay that way forever about to say. <laughs> but um it is a nice refreshing change from like a really ad heavy kind of site how does a a website like yours then sort of become sustainable long term like how do you manage that and have you seen with like jenopnik jenopnik you know it's, yeah. it's changed or whatever and people are trying to you know, make it make money or make more money or whatever. How, what What's your sort of strategy? Well, we have we have a plan. I promise. <laughs> um, we do have a plan. Uh, and right now, we're in a phase of the plan where we we decided we want to build our audience and community first before yep. we start because we have to have something to sell. So before we start getting sponsorships and ads and that kind of thing, we want to make sure we build up a community so we have so we can prove there's a real thing of value here, which I absolutely believe there is. We've we passed a million page views after our first month, just like last week. Um, every day, like our we're getting more and more people. Like it's Sounds going great. the right direction, and um, we we think we're going to be able to get uh, 
we're we're looking into a more of a sponsorship model for things just to keep things from becoming overly ad heavy on the page, which we yeah. don't want to do. We want the user experience to remain strong. So we have a few other ideas about how to make that happen. Um, we have the luxury of a little bit of time to do this, to, which I know a lot of sites wouldn't. So we, we want to make the most of that and make sure we really get this product where we want it to be first. Um, you know, so we've got a, a few different options that we're still playing with. Honestly, that's not the part I'm focused on. So I'm not going to talk too much about it. Cause I, yeah, I, yeah. I, trusting we have a good business guy who's like paying attention to this stuff and i'm gonna <laughs> let him do his thing because i've learned um, i'm not great at that stuff but i can promise you there's an interesting plan and the key part of that plan is the user experience is always paramount and we'd rather not go to something like a subscription model because we want as much reach as possible like we don't want to lock people out by having to have a subscription we want everybody to be able to click on an interesting article and read it. And we want that experience to be good. So uh, I hope it's going to be sustainable. I think it will be. And I, yeah. I'm trusting that there's clever, clever people coming up with stuff. Yeah. 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 And I think that that balance is, is key. Like it, it's very easy as you're starting out, like to, to go, okay, we need some revenue. So you just start putting ads in, but actually the ads are like a bit shit and they're not that relevant yes. because you've not, really got the right people and then yeah you almost sort of put off the opportunity you don't but like of down the line going actually it's way better with us if we can work with four companies and That's exactly help them and provide something for them in a really nice professional way but then your content it can just be content rather than just, you know, stuff exactly. and that's what we're thinking. And you know, initially I was the one saying we got to monetize this and get some ad services on there. And I was talked out of it because um, they all had a much clearer vision close to what you're talking about. We're like that. It doesn't make sense for us to just dump these little crappy ads on there. It's just going to degrade a user experience. We just got to build it up the right way. And then yeah. we'll be able to get uh, the right kinds of sponsorships and ads and things that will be, high value and low impact for the the end reader. And we do have one, yeah. we do have one sponsor. We have Optima batteries, which is, which is nice. So it's not like we have nothing right now, mm. but so there's a, yeah, it's, it's such a tricky plans. balance. I've got it. Let's say with the podcast, most of my, the audio side has uh, one major sponsor. Um, and then the video side goes on YouTube and there's ads and stuff, but it's that thing of going, how often do you put ads do you even put ads? Because you're like, well, you kind yeah. of want it to grow. Does it make a difference? I don't know. And then like, yeah. when to put it in, go back through, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, that's probably one. I it's, tra- it's tough. Cause, Cause like, you've got to ride that line of what, you know, you can't degrade that user experience. Like they'll accept things. And in fact, our users have written, like we'll do more ads we'll, or start a Patreon or whatever. Like people want to help because they yeah. like what they're getting and they don't want it to go away. People do understand that things aren't free. So as long as you respect your readers that way, uh, I think there's a, there's a point where you guys, where, where it can be met, where like the needs of the site and the needs of the readers can, can find that balance. And that's, that's what we're shooting for. That's uh, yeah. and hopefully we're going to get there, but we're not going to do a bunch of horrible programmatic ads all over the site. That's just yeah, yeah, not yeah. going to happen. So don't and then, worry. And then you okay. just get people, get to the homepage and then they're gone they're like nah they yeah exactly they don't get Which engaged is, that's what we were coming away from and we um that's just not the road we're gonna go down yeah have you noticed like let's say some like jalopnik what was 
when you were sort of leaving, what do you know any idea what like site views and stuff like for a website like that are? It's big. I mean, Jalopnik is a juggernaut. Um, at its peak, so in like 2018, 2019, somewhere in that range, like when it was at its absolute peak, it was it was like six million uniques a month or something. Like, it was huge. I mean, it was like yeah. millions and millions uniques a month. And um, during that period, David and I uh, were the leaders in the, I think David was at the top mm. actually of just, of, you know, leaders in content wise. So we, we've got, uh, we understand what people want to see. And David's actually the be- better at this than me. He's very good at crafting headlines in a way because yeah. there's a weird art to it of making it for putting sure. just enough information and like it, and they always read a little weird sometimes, but they always work. David knows exactly what he's doing for that stuff, so I always I let him let him handle that kind of thing because it's there's a, a method to it, and he's definitely figured it out. So we the traffic was huge, and I I think currently it definitely has dropped, although I don't know. I don't know where it is right now. Yeah. Don't share that information with me anymore. But um, it's uh, it's it's still very much a juggernaut. And you know, so we've got a, you know we're starting from scratch in a lot of ways. We we have to get past. We have to like right now. Most of our traffic is very organic. People type in the Autopian yeah. or search for it. Uh, so we have a lot of room with like SEO and search and other things to grow that. Cause right now it's dedicated people who have followed us who are yeah. forming the core of that community, which is great. That's exactly what we wanted to start with. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle, but I feel good about how we, how we've gotten this thing started. Mm. And then as time grows, as more articles go out, you're more, you're going to get more, more, more staff and more searched. articles. Right. Yeah, like once, yeah, because like, like right now we're putting out about as many articles to hit the quality level we want. We're putting out about as many articles as we can with the limited staff we have. Yeah. As we staff up, that'll increase. That'll get more people and it'll help. And David yeah. and I have an interesting balance of, uh, of like on the quality thing. Like I'm very much a get something out there. It's good enough. Just yeah. have fun. Get it out there. I'm like a 75% quality guy. David is a 120% quality guy. <laughs> so we bang heads a lot, but that's actually what works. Cause we kind of arrive between the two of us at about an 85 level, yeah. which is great. 85 is really good. It gives you the information we need, but it still gets done. And that's, that's a key thing. So David's about get it right. And I'm about get it out. And those are two elements that you absolutely have to have. Yeah, but that it does must make be some, you know, tricky for some down. people. I think if you've got that, I, I want it to be, well, let's say, you know, the top, top, top level of quality. You, like you said, you just don't get stuff done. And yeah. content you know, I mean, we, out there is better than content not out there. 100%. But pretty much. Yeah, for the most part, that is true. You want it, people have to see it to enjoy it. So, and you know, but the, the pressure for that quality there is crucial because it does mean we're never we're not going to put out crap um but you know we still have to put stuff out so it's, it's a balance there and then as you know as we staff up we'll have more time for longer term stories for like bigger deeper dive stories and mm-hmm. i've got a list of things i want to dig deeper into david has a list of things he wants to dig deeper into and once we have that then we can do things that are like really extremely high quality extremely in-depth things as well as the shorter quicker things so it's um it's an interesting balance to have. And, you know, yeah, time yeah. is always, there's always a pressure to get stuff up. Yeah. So 
Like you, even before today, I had to stay up late last night making sure I had enough to fill the hole because David's actually on a press trip today. So I'm running the show. So <laughs> it's uh, like to get this like couple hour block of time. I like stayed up to like three last night writing something. So I would make sure I'd had something scheduled. Ready oh, well, to go. Fair play. Well, the, thanks. Thanks for doing that. Um, no, no, I'm happy to do it. I don't mind, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, th- this is the startup thing, you know, there's just yeah. skeleton crew right now. Hectic, but, hectic at the start. Yeah. Well, I, I think it will probably keep being like that, but definitely. Yeah, you're probably right, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, it, well, it sounds like it's going well. Do the yeah. sort of American versus US, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of like sort of things that we do totally. Do. Are there other things you look at that come out or happen over here that you're just like, I don't understand or w- how yeah, is I, this so different or is it less so? Like for you, well, like UK in particular or Europe in general or just anywhere. A bit outside. of both. I mean, you know, in, I always... I always kind of preferred European automotive culture in a way because I like small and weird cars, frankly. And those are yeah. just a lot more common in uh, Europe. You know, things like and certain things like stick shift, you know, manual transmission adoption here is dwindling to nothing. And in Europe, in the UK and other places, it's still a significant amount. So yeah. you guys have a lot of things that are weirdly coveted by a lot of us in America, like the idea of the manual wagon, you know, is like almost impossible to find here. And I think people would like roll their eyes at it there. Like the fact that you guys have, um, you know, Skodas and, um, uh, uh, Dacias and things like that. Cheap cars are coveted here. Like I love the, the, what did the little Dacia SUV thing, uh, which is mm-hmm. the, uh, that I love yeah, well, yeah, the Senderos and like when, you know, all that kind of stuff, there's all kinds of forbidden fruit that you guys have that we think is, is exciting. Well, I mean, not, I don't know about we, I think is exciting. Um, so there's, that's, that's you know, so funny there's that. that that is such a thing. Cause I, I just went on holiday, um, to Greece and yeah. my rental car was a, it was like a, a Fiat estate. So wagon and it was manual, yeah. uh, cause that's the cheapest. And, yeah. Um, that was just like the cheapest, biggest car we could get to put our sort of family stuff in. And then I was sitting at lunch and there was a table next to us and it was some Americans that had come over. And uh, they were telling, one of them was telling another other story about how he'd come to Europe, got a rental car and it was a stick uh, yeah, or a manual. <laughs> and he had no, had no idea how to drive it. So the other person in the car was driving it, got stopped by the police and they're like, but you're the one insured, you have to drive the car. What are you even doing? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. Like, I mean, but the thing is, you know, it seems like a recent thing, although growing up, neither of my parents could drive stick and they were both born in like the 30s and they were yeah. driving cars in the 50s. But you it's amazing how long in America you could get by without learning how to drive stick. Like I bought my first car when I was 15. I bought this 68 Beetle when I was 15 before I could even drive. And I had to find like a friend of my dad's to drive it back to our house. Cause no one in my yeah. family knew how to drive stick. It's crazy. But there, uh, you know, what's actually going on right now that um, when you guys talk to David, definitely bring this up. Uh, you know, people are freaking out in the UK because of your MOT. They want to switch to every other year yes. instead of every year. Yeah. So David thinks this is the most ridiculous argument ever. For one thing, he lives in Michigan, which has no, inspections at all <laughs> nothing you can literally drive rust held together by paint yeah. on a highway in michigan and everybody is like that's just fine 
But he thinks like, yeah, like every other year is completely fine. Even in Germany, apparently, they only do it every other year. You guys will be fine is what he's saying. You're not, no one's, no one's going to die if you do your MOT every other year instead of it. That's an interesting one. I, I, I think it, it sounds, going from one year to two sounds so crazy. Because it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, double the time. Like, but Yeah. What's going to happen? I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether population density makes a big difference as well. But I don't know. For me, it it's a as like a, a concept i don't see why you would do it because it's like for the the people that are doing the mot it's business fine for it's the true. people that own the cars it's not a big cost like if you're buying fuel and whatever like the cost of an mot is a small amount and you get the warnings they, there's so many people i know that drive around not loads of people but they haven't got a clue. They have not got a clue. There might be an engine warning light, and they're like, "We're like, what's that?" Like, "Oh, it's a light of an engine." Like, <laughs> yeah, cool, whatever. Do another twenty thousand miles, and yeah, yeah. Like having the light. MOT, like, yeah. Someone says like, "This wheel is going to fall off. You have to do something. You're not allowed to drive the car until you change it." Um, right. And just having that little nudge, I think, is is great. Yeah, I mean, I see the point there too. I don't know. I. <laughs> We, we live differently in America, though. I think this, if you want a fundamental difference, for yeah. whatever reason, a lot of America, like car culture, like we're more willing to put up with, if it's like cheap, we're willing to like be happy with it and really revel in it. Like our low fuel costs, even though it's bad now for Americans, it's nothing like what fuel yeah, yeah, costs yeah. are in Europe. And everybody's going crazy because, you know, gas is like <laughs> four bucks a gallon. But I know it's like, in Europe, it's much, much different, but like the, like there's this weird mentality in America, like where we want to be able to do dumb shit. Like if you keep us safe, that almost gets Americans angry and it's not rational at all. But again, <laughs> I mean, anything, car, what, the reason I'm so interested in cars as a subject is because fundamentally they are not rational things. They may be the no. least rational big purchases that anybody makes we buy cars for absurd reasons and americans maybe even more so than most like and the idea you know so like we're david like david's idea that like david has a dozen rusty jeeps like an mot like thing for every year would be crippled <laughs> yeah, yeah. it wouldn't work but and me too i've got like i've got like six cars in my yard and i doubt all of, if i had to keep all of them up to the standards that mot had i probably wouldn't be able to pull that off either and you, that would bother me you don't I, have to do it you don't have you to have do the, the option no so no. if you want to drive them you do yeah but if you don't want to drive them if you're like they're just going to sit in my garden for five years whilst i yeah. work it out you just register them as like off the road no. okay and then but you don't fine. have an option to drive something unsafe not legally we because we and, in america like, that's that's a right not just an option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want a bathtub right. on wheels with yes, a V8. I want a bathtub on wheels. And yeah, and depending on, like some states, of course, are more restrictive than others. California, yeah. for example, has more, you know, closer to like rational kind of rules and things. Things like Michigan and then parts of the Midwest, even where I am in North Carolina, if you actually look at the rules for what you need on a car, I'm not even sure you need two taillights out here. I'm not even <laughs> sure you need, like you can get by with some pretty minimal crap if you really want to. My Yugo, for example, is marginal in an awful yeah. lot of ways. But I'm still <laughs> driving around. It's hard to argue if that's a good idea, but at the same time, I love that I can do it. 
but it's not a smart idea. It's it's not smart. I don't know what it, that's a. I, this is an I, American. I get thing. the ethos. Like I understand the. I want to be able to drive. If if I think I can drive it, and it, I yeah. think you know what, I'll give it a go. I should be allowed to. I understand that. I totally. I want to be totally clear. I'm not a hundred percent endorsing this concept or yeah, yeah, yeah. not endorsing it. I don't. I'm too saturated in this culture. Yeah. To really look at it objectively or rationally, because it's I, I can see that it's not the rational thing is check your car as often as yeah. you could check it to make sure the wheels don't fall off or you're not bolting something to rust or whatever. That's the rational thing. At the same time, I think if I had to do it, I <laughs> it would bother me. And that's there's no way to make that. There's no way to square that. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. I think I, I did a uh the gumball a long time ago i've done it a few times oh, yeah. but uh, in various forms and i did one which was uh east coast to west coast of the states and i could see how there was a lot of bit in the middle of that where like there's not really any cars there's not really any no. corners like yeah you don't I, I, you don't need rules I, exactly I mean, there are not like, a lot of rules like, wyoming like what are you gonna hit <laughs> like, yeah exactly if, if, you, if your car smashes, whatever, you're not going to hit anything serious and no. you're not going to hit anyone else. Whereas like here, you literally yeah, yeah. can drive from one end of the country and you could be through like people's houses the entire way. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, the density. You're right. I think density is absolutely an issue with this because we just have a lot of space, a lot of open space. Yeah. And, you know, like you can't, you physically can't drive two days straight in the UK like you can't here. No. And still be in america like <laughs> on one road in a straight line <laughs> on what I, I did so when i moved from la to north carolina i bought that old this old 77 dodge rv which is fantastic yeah. by the way there's no greater luxury than a car you can just pull to the side of the road and take a comfortable shit in it's definitely nice, nice. i like yeah. that it's wonderful and uh so we i drove this old thing and i was literally you know you go on i-40 at one end and then you don't stop until you get to north carolina yeah it's an absurd thing if you think about it you would be halfway into the atlantic if you tried that in in the uk yeah yeah yeah. the i i saw recently it was someone had set a distance record for an ev and they did or it was they did a coast to coast it was a really weird record i think it was in a taycan and yeah. it was a charging time record so it was like oh. they did coast to coast in a taycan and they charged for it was like two and a half hours or something in total now wow really they gamed the system quite a lot because it was in it was in partnership with one of the charging networks and they only charged at the super fast ones and right. they there was a lot of plan it was it's, it's impressive considering yeah, the amount it's like of like invasion of normandy level of planning out though yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but they only charged from like naught to 40 percent or something <sighs> you know every time and yeah. then did that but um the the sort of fuel economy or whatever that is in ev terms i don't know what the yeah, actually, mpge thing mpge or yeah, yeah. electric efficienciness yeah. um right like to <laughs> do that. that we looked at it and was like there's just no way you could do that in the uk because you can't drive <laughs> at that speed whatever speed they did i don't know 50 or something without right. having to stop or go around a corner or any of those things <laughs> to get anywhere near the level of efficiency yeah. That they did and it it made me think about you see particularly in the states and people do it here but not so much these sort of hyper miling and the oh, figures yeah. people get out of oh, this guy i think he, he had like had like some sort of truck 
with like a V8 and managed to get 60 MPG or 50 MPG. It's something ridiculous. I've done, you know, like, I've, I've won a hypermiling challenge uh, that Audi did a few years back. Okay, it was one of the nice. diesels before Dieselgate. Uh, it was like an Audi diesel. And it was like a challenge thing where like all these journalists got the cars, sealed the gas tanks. And then we were going from like uh, Arizona to San Diego. Anyway, I did about 836 miles or something like that on one tank of diesel. Hypermiling is the most god awful sort of driving I've ever done. <laughs> I'm very good at it, but I hate every single second of it because it's like, you know, it was hot in the summer. Windows are up, no climate control. You're, shoes off so I could feather the throttle to the exact precise, keep it like right at 2000 RPM. And you're, you have to like shift, shift. Sometimes you shift into neutral. If you want to accelerate down a grade, then you put it, it's, it's awful. It's like math in tedium and everything. It's so bad. We were actually on the highway at one point reading about zero on our, like your zero miles left, but we still had yeah. a long ways to go doing like 48 on the highway. And a cop pulls up behind us and over his loudspeaker yells, you have to go faster. And then he like <laughs> stayed behind us and made us do like 60 miles an hour. And we thought we were dead, but we actually were able to still pull it off. But it's, it's such awful driving It's joyless. It is absolutely joyless. And I respect the people who get super into it and, put cardboard on their geo metros and make them into teardrops or whatever, but Oh, it's God awful. But yeah, the, the, I, I don't know if you could do that in the UK really. Definitely not to the same level. Yeah. You can obviously try it, but like all the things like not what's breaking. The late, what's the furthest you can drive up and down in the UK? Like oh, from South on, to all the way one, up. The thing is you can't do it on one road. Oh really? Okay. So there's the road network just doesn't work like Yeah, it's not like a grid. <laughs> it's not just a grid like and then from one to the top. You've got some loops and whatnot. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. 700 miles? Yeah. I don't know. Wow. I, I absolute guess from like maybe 800. <laughs> I don't know. Um but whenever I talk to friends from Europe about uh, a road trip and I'll mention it's like, you know, I'm going to drive like 12 hours today or whatever. It, for all of them, they they can't fathom that that's just not that big a deal. And you're still not where you need to go. Like 12 hours yeah. in most of Europe, you've changed entire cultures and histories. Yes. And in the U.S., it's just like maybe they're eating different parts of the pig where you end up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe. You've seen like six strip malls and gun shops and firework yeah. stores and that's yeah. it <laughs> that's it avail yourself to the firework stores because those those do vary state by state you can't get okay. fireworks in every state <laughs> no yeah if you do a 12 hour journey in europe if you did try to do multiple days of that sort of level of driving you have gone through so many countries so, so many. many languages so many different types right, of cars. right now you're basically you, i don't even know if you could because there's a, a war zone blocking you in the, the long true. direction but, true you'd yeah. have to be doing some loops yeah you have to pop but. down italy and scan it yeah it's crazy <laughs> right <sighs> um before i i thought we, we sort of slowly tailored this off but at one okay. point earlier you mentioned you've got a book yes um, i was not i was not aware of this my research was poor tell talk to me about this book concept and uh in a little bit okay. about it. So this is, so another one of my interests is uh, autonomy. Um, Cause mm. I was covering a lot of autonomy because it's, 
And it's, you know, I, I cover, you know, there's some interested in the technical side, but more I'm interested in the conceptual side because yeah. it's a fundamental shift in the way uh, that we deal with cars and transportation. And what I think is interesting is it's actually a return to the pre-automotive era. Like back in, you know, before cars were common, we used animals to drive us around. A horse in a cart is a semi-autonomous vehicle. Because yeah. a horse knows how to know it. Horses, I don't know if you're aware, were moving around on their own long before there were people. <laughs> they know how to do this. When you're in, when you're up, when you're behind the reins of a horse, you don't have to tell it how to keep in the lane. It knows that yeah. it has a brain and eyeballs and all that stuff. And, um, you know, it, so for all those centuries, we were driving semi-autonomous vehicles. You would guide a horse. You would tell yeah. it which direction you'd want to go. And then that would be, you know, but you didn't actually have to know how to drive. So then like when the very first cars came out, so, you know, there was like you know, 1769, you have Cugno's steam drag. And then the first real example of like a private car, I think would be in 1803. There was a thing called the London steam carriage. That was, uh, I think Richard Trevithick made it. So it was basically the first purpose built passenger car. And mm. there's a great uh, recounting of them driving it. And he like runs into a bunch of hedges and things and kind of has like an early car wreck because I think primarily we didn't know, have any idea how to do this stuff. Even if he's, he was going yeah. at like maybe 15 miles an hour, 10 or 15. But when it comes to us tracking things, any, all of our experience is like walking or running pace and, you know, the management of how to deal with a larger vehicle, it was not obvious, but we did learn that. And we've learned it really well. And cars became this almost prosthetic like device that we wear. Like you, you make a physical motion with your foot or your arms, and then it just gets translated into these larger motions of a car. It's prosthetic. It is still mm. a physical body doing something. So autonomy means we're switching back to the point where we're a passenger again. We're not fully in control. And I think there's a lot that we could lose like if this is just a blip, if human driving is just like this 150 year blip before everything becomes autonomous, then like the idea of traveling is going to change a lot because it'll like when you drive on a long road trip, you are engaged the whole time. You're aware you're you're moving through one point to another. You see the scenery change. You're aware the whole mm. time. Once you're a passenger, that all changes. It becomes more like air travel or slow teleporting because you start at one position, you do whatever the hell during the journey, and then you end up somewhere else. You're no longer engaged in that journey. Yeah. You're going to be reading or on your phone or sleeping or masturbating or whatever you're going to do in that car, but you're not actively engaged with the process of traveling. So I think there's something we should be aware of this before we go whole hog into this because there's value to that. And then the idea of uh, productivity gets brought up a lot. Like they always show like people, you know, in like autonomous car, you know, like promotional and propaganda, you know, they're doing things, they're getting yeah. work done. Why do we want that so badly? <laughs> like as it stands right now with mobile phones and constant communication, there's really only two places you can guarantee to be left alone. And that's if you're yeah. on the toilet or driving because you're, you're not going to hope. I mean, actually people probably work on their toilet too. They probably are on their phone. Looking yeah, at stuff. yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but when you're driving, you have to, like, you have to have some degree of focus. You can't be expected to actually do work, work really, unless you're yeah. a truck driver or something, but you know what I mean? Um, and what's nice about the process of driving is it uses 
a portion of your brain that's like muscle memory to actually guide and control the car, but you have a lot free too. That's why you can listen to music or a podcast or talk to a friend and mm. you still have that part of your mind free. And it's a great way. Like sometimes I'll drive just to think about ideas and come up with things because it does it, it by, by giving your rest of your mind something physical to do, it frees up the other part and we'll lose that when it comes to autonomy because then it'll be no different than sitting at your desk or wherever the hell you normally do stuff. And um, I think there's value to those things and I don't want to see them go. And at the same time, I think there's all kinds of potential for autonomous vehicles uh, in ways that maybe we haven't even think thought of. Like a big premise of this book is that uh, we need to think about autonomous cars as robots, literal robots, because they will be the first mass deployment of a robot that is capable of actually being dangerous. Like we have Roombas yeah. and things now, but they're not going to hurt you. And we've certainly had industrial robots for a long time, but they're sequestered off in very specific areas. I mean, deployed into mainstream society with no real restrictions, um, a 4,000 pound autonomous car is going to be an interesting thing to deal with. And I don't see a lot of thought about how that affects the overall structure of society happening. And the path we're going down now, I don't actually think is that great. I think level two autonomy is garbage because anything that demands that you both give up control of the car to drive while simultaneously remaining constantly aware and ready yeah. to take over is not something humans are good at. And there have been studies. There was this, uh, was it Macklemore study in 1948? This thing called the vigilance problem, where he was like monitoring people who were monitoring radar screens and realizing when something's doing most of the work, people are just not good at devoting a lot of attention, yeah. which is why we've had issues of people crashing into things on Tesla autopilot that they should have seen or whatever, because you're autopilot. just not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not auto. You're, you're supposed to be ready to go and they have all kinds of warnings. But it doesn't matter if it's doing most of the work in, in the, in the conundrum is the better a level two system is, the more dangerous it is, because the better it is at most of the stuff lulling you into the sense of security that it's doing things until it can't. And then you're yeah. really not prepared. And level three is even worse. Level three autonomy is considered where it can have full control and you don't have to pay attention except when it does. Yeah. And I've written about this and talked to experts. There is no clear parameters of like, how does it warn you? How much time should it give you? What are the parameters where it's okay and where it isn't? Right now, level three is limited to like traffic jam speeds. And like it's 37 miles an hour yeah. maximum, at least in European law. But they want to expand that. And they, nobody's done the work of figuring out, well, how does this actually work with the human behind the wheel? So um it's... Hasn't Mercedes have, have they've said yeah. with the the next I can't remember is like S class or whatever they're like oh it's going to have level three and we they've said they're going to accept the liability when it's engaged now yeah that in, that in itself is a whole like another can of worms um, I, I think I find it a really interesting topic because of all of the n not necessarily the tech because the tech is what it is and it's. Yeah. either there or not there etc but it's all of these sort of like kind of philosoph philosophical questions of like who's responsible right. who makes the decision as humans we make all the decisions you know the sort of i guess the, the, the conundrum that comes up a lot of the time is like some uh let's just say someone 
you're driving down the road, 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, whatever. Someone steps out or two people step out. There's the, the trolley problem kind of. And you're like, yeah. which way does it go? You know, yeah. who does it kill? And I mean, all of yeah, that sort of stuff. And the worst case scenario, I can imagine checking credit ratings, you know, deciding yeah. who, who's going to get like, yeah, I don't know like, what that criteria is. Does it prioritize the, the inhabitants of the, the people inside the car over the people outside the car? Yeah. And like, so the more issues. expensive a car you're in, does it value <laughs> yeah. you more as a person? Like how, how does yeah. it make all these decisions? It um, could. Maybe it'll check your Instagram account and do a quick evaluation of what it thinks of you. Yeah. Be that attractive. Your social you score you? in China, <laughs> the, heavily ranked. Yeah. Um, and then it, add this tech into a, I mean, America being America, the Hummer, the electric Hummer, which yeah. is obviously what should be made in an EV form, 100%. four and a half tons or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, you want um, it, yeah. Nice and wide. Nice and wide, big brick. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that thing should be driving around. Um, I, it's mad. It's, it is such a rocky yeah. road. And it's, and I feel like, I feel like there's a big push to get this, like get these problems solved without thinking about them on a larger systems level. Mm. Like they're working on the individual car's ability to detect their environment and understand it move. But I don't think that's the right angle. Like for example, Right now, I think the one problem all AV companies should be working on is how do you get your car off the road if something goes wrong? Nobody does this right now. Right now, if you're in a level two car or even most level three cars and it's trying to get your attention to take over and it can't, for example, the most they do is put on their hazard lights and come to a stop Mm. in an active traffic lane, which is a awful idea it's a terrible idea if you were on the highway and you were having a problem with something you would never think i'll just stop in this lane of traffic and put my hazard lights on it'll be fine nobody would do that and that's literally what all of the cars on the market today do that's not a solution and the problem is getting off the road onto a shoulder if the car and the car is only going to need to do it if something's compromised a sensor problem Mm. it needs your attention it can't for whatever reason it decided it can't continue so it's already impaired and it has to do something complicated like finding a clear spot off the road. How the hell do we solve that? I think it's going to take infrastructure help, something outside the car itself to help it figure out how to get a car out of an active traffic lane. But nobody seems to want to do that. They all, in America at least, they think yeah. it would take forever. There's no way to get every state to agree on it. We're going to be boned. So let's just not do it that way. But what else are you going to do? You have to get cars out of the way if these things are going to be useful. China may have better luck with this stuff because their the nature of their system is so much more centralized. They could have, you know, beacon type things where like if a car's sensors are disabled, it can get a signal and know to get off the side of the road and they can just say, this is how the country does it. And then that's what happens. So there's some advantages to central control when it comes to that kind of thing. But in America... I don't know. Nobody's working on this problem. And for me, it seems like that's the biggest problem. If there's going to be widespread adoption of, of autonomous vehicles, you've got to figure out how to get them the hell off the road when there's trouble. And no, nobody seems to be, no one seems to care. And that I, is a, that is a real problem because yeah. what, I mean, how do you even like you come up with a solution, whatever the solution is. And then what do you do? Get someone to just get a, a big hammer and just start smashing stuff on the car and see how, if it can keep, yeah. you know, how much stuff do you have to break or break the one thing that that does the job and then it can't do it. 
but it needs it's to just, do it. Yeah. yeah, it has to know. I mean, you know, like there's so many things that could potentially go wrong. There's a lot of sensors, a lot of electronics, a lot of, like it's not. They're complicated. I mean, there's no way around that. There's a lot of things that can fail. Even if our reliability is really good, it doesn't matter. You get masses of these things out there. Some will fail. And right now, you know, a human being, of course, could pass out, could have a heart attack or whatever at the wheel. We know that. That's a thing that can happen. And there is no good solution. They crash. You know, it's not good. But it happens, you know, we're not we're building something that's supposed to be better than humans. We're trying yeah. to solve these problems. Doing something that's just as bad isn't isn't worth the extra hardware that you're putting in. And it's, I don't know, it feels like it's so frustrating because I just wrote up something about what the problem is with level three. And I wrote up why I think it's a problem. And David is like, you got to talk to a real engineer. It can't be this vague. It can't be let, they have no solutions. So I found an actual AV engineer works for a major automaker, and he told me there aren't solutions. There, it is the the level, the SAE level of level three is this vague. There aren't parameters in place. No, everybody is just guessing. Was I think an actual quote yeah. of his? Why wow. are we okay with that? You, for something this big, we shouldn't just be guessing. We should be coming up with standards and procedures first, and then design machines to fit them. I, I or, like you say, in a crazy way look like these are the stages we've got one two three four i don't know what it goes to is four at the top um the uh, but three you're not actually allowed to use three is like a testing level it's got the systems but we've always got a driver and whatever and then you're like when you get to the it's next even, level but how you know, do, it's, yeah it's even more confusing because the levels everybody assumes the levels are levels of capability but they're not it's not about what's more advanced. It's the levels just refer to the state of interaction between the machine and the person. Oh, okay. Which is what's confusing because they shouldn't have called them levels. Levels, everybody yeah. think level up. It's not that. And this causes a lot of people, like when the Tesla stands get angry at me, they, you know, they talk about, well, you have to go through level two to get to level three or whatever when I complain about level two. Not if two. you don't complete it. <laughs> You, well, you do, it doesn't matter because it's just, level yeah. two just means human is always ready to take over. Level three means human is sometimes ready to take over. Level four means human doesn't have to pay attention in a restricted area. Level five is car does everything. Everywhere, yeah. So, but you can have a level two system that is incredibly advanced, but they've still designed it so you have to be ready to take over. So it's it's inherently confusing. Everything about the way we're deploying this, frankly, I think is ridiculous. It it does not feel like it makes sense in any way. The tech is amazing. The tech is growing at incredible rates ever, you know, like every year it's getting better and better. But the way that's actually being implemented and the way they're thinking about how to deal with these on a bigger systems, mm. human machine level feels like nobody's paying any attention to because it's not the sexy part nobody wants to work no. in the regulations you know it's, like it, i'm so wary of it we've got in the uk uh, they announced last week week before um that they, we're gonna have some buses some like coaches um that are gonna use a certain road network and they're gonna be level three autonomous or something um or no they they, they said something like fully autonomous you know obviously the four. Is gonna say if that. it's like a limited area that means level four it's like fully but, autonomous in a I area. think they use public roads and oh. they've said in the sort of the press release stuff that I could find 
that they're going to be whatever level four, but they're going to have uh, some sort of they basically said like uh, EV professional driver assist humans. <laughs> so they're going to have drivers that are going to okay. sit there and not touch it and, until... and and sit there. But we know how much of a problem that is. Yeah. So until they get to the point when it's fine, but yeah. they're going to be on the road. And as a passenger, I do not want to get in that vehicle ever. <laughs> I'd rather just get in one that's driven by a human. Cause if you're yeah. going to have a human driving it, but not driving it, they're not going to be paying attention as much as they could be. No, of course they won't. That's, that's the uh, inherent problem. The driving and if and it's not, not driving, a closed network, you... then how's it going to work? Like they're I mean, not on rails. No, I mean, they can map, if it's a closed network area, they can map those out pretty well. And those will tend to be like right now we have like Waymo and uh, a bunch of other companies, Argo, that are doing these tests in restricted cities of fully Mm. autonomous vehicles. And they've been doing this for quite a while. Um, Generally, they work okay because they've mapped those roads out really well and they only go in certain areas and they know what to expect and they're being monitored remotely. But I don't know. It's still, it's still an issue. And uh, it still comes back to like, I feel like simple things are getting ignored. Get them off the road. If there's trouble like that, I can't stress enough. Like why, why isn't everybody just working on that? And we do have, but we, we do have the situation now. And then this is where the switches, the responsibility side, I think is, is such a huge part of the whole thing, because if I'm driving a car and the engine could blow up. So technically it could just come to a halt or the, for some reason, the brakes, which doesn't seem to happen, but you know, let's just say for some reason your brakes all locked up, fried, and you just yeah, ground sure. to a halt. It's your fault. You're stuck in the middle of a motorway here. Everyone's going 70 miles an hour and you need to get out of the road. Right. Okay. Shit situation. You may die, but it's it's sort of your responsibility, your fault, etc. to some level. As soon as you flip that the other way around, there's they might say, yes, computers will be better than humans which statistically might be possible. Humans are pretty good at driving. And blah, blah, we blah, 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 shockingly blah. good at driving, actually, yeah. yeah. Like, really good at driving. Yeah, it's but weird. But on certain roads, etc., you'll get less of people distractedly on their phones driving into other cars because the car might slow down. But as soon right. as you switch that round to it's not your responsibility, the level of incident that I think most people are willing to accept... Go, for me, it goes to naught. I yeah. am not comfortable right. driving along at 70 miles an hour in a, car, in a car that could make a mistake. Right. It's very different when you're, you know you can, but there's a big conceptual difference between, you know, it's like how some, like uh, people, some of the best drivers I know, racing drivers, hate being a passenger. Mm. Like I know really good drivers who just can't be a passenger because they're fundamentally not in control that it's the same feeling you're going to get because we, you don't know. And also you generally know this sense. Like if you wake up in the morning, you don't feel great or you can, you can tell when you're maybe, maybe you shouldn't be driving. Mm. You can pass software updates now over the air updates to cars that are probably fine, but maybe not. Maybe there is a bug in there. Software is complicated. There was just a situation just like last week or the week before Volvo sent an over the air update that completely bricked a whole bunch of cars. They, <laughs> they put them into like the anti theft mode and people just 
went out in the morning and couldn't drive them. Yeah. This was not a voluntary update. It was just sent out as like a bug fix. And then people just parked. And then the next day, car doesn't work. Autonomous software is full of full of code and a complicated code. So how do you know you put in you know, uh, over the air update for something, something might not be working. And then all of a sudden it doesn't show up until a particular set of circumstances appears in the road. And then without warning, you're boned. I don't know. I mean, we trust computers for all kinds of things. Chances are it'll be okay. It'll get there. I It'll think it will there. get there, but when? Yeah. 50 years, maybe. I don't know. But yeah. um, it's, just... it, it's, it's interesting. But I agree that certain stuff seems to be rolled out. We're rolling stuff out ahead of maybe like where it watched. Definitely with, let's say, Tesla's. Yeah, come at me, people. Yeah. Whatever. I do quite like <laughs> Tesla's. But some of the fully autonomous driving, whatever, that you can buy with your tesla we know they even say it's not fully autonomous they just yeah. say Except it the is. name the name yeah. is autopilot but um yeah. but there's so many clips of like cars making mistakes and yeah. just like veering into a cyclist that sort of thing like that's yep. not okay no and then yeah it, it's it, look it's incredibly impressive it, for what it is it it's is. incredibly impressive but that doesn't mean it's finished it doesn't mean it's good enough to drive on public roads and it's okay if you as the owner have decided i want to be part of this beta test everybody else around you hasn't agreed to be part of the beta test there's all kinds of problems and it's uh links quite nicely into the mot problem (laughs) oh yeah that's that's a good point not everybody has agreed to be on the road with your piece of shit that might fall apart. Yeah. That's a very valid point. Absolutely. I guess unless you're in Michigan where everybody just assumes everybody's yeah. driving. You just stay really far away from everyone. <laughs> yeah. Also, you can kind of see, like when you drive by one of those trucks and the frame is very clearly sagging in the middle. Yeah. You just know, just, just but these are the sorts of things that you pick up as a human. Like yeah. these tiny, and especially if you, if you pay a lot of attention to driving, and pay a lot of attention to humans. And that's, I think, is a more important part of the whole thing. You pick up stuff about a car and a driver. Absolutely. And the way they're acting, way better than a camera. I mean, cameras couldn't do it. because We rely on human culture is such a big part of driving. We don't even realize it. Like, you've driven in a, well, I guess London might be this way. But in New York, if you want to drive, if you want to drive through an intersection, and there's people will just cross in front of your car. And the yeah. way you have to do it is you sort of drive like you're going to run into people, but yeah. you don't really mean it. And people will eventually give way. How yeah. do you program a computer to drive like you might hit somebody, but don't <laughs> exactly. really mean it? Or gestures. We make gestures all the time. People, or you, you see someone in the corner has a little yeah. kid. You know, the little kid might do something crazy because they're yeah. a little kid. They might do shit. So you, you adjust accordingly. How do you program all these years of just human culture into a car to understand? Yeah. You know, we can see someone looks a little crazy on the corner. Maybe they're in a car. Maybe they're driving weird. We go on alert. How, or how eye you, contact. Because that that's a huge is part of driving. If, if, if you've made eye contact with someone, you know they've seen you. And exactly. Like, they're not going to pull out or they might pull out and therefore you can continue. But LA you, has an un, unwritten rule of that, like where if you're trying to get into a lane of traffic, if you make eye contact with a driver, the rule is they have to let you in. <laughs> and I've been driving in LA where someone is just very much trying not yeah. to make eye contact. Yeah, 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 and then yeah. I've done it and they'd be like, oh, like, yeah, you won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, like how do you program that stuff? Like these weird unwritten societal cultural driving rules? 
your, your, your lights are the eyes. And then they, if they yeah, light, yeah, see exactly. the other lights. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But then they just have to flash them the right way. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's, it's all it's a, extremely fascinating. As, you know, as troubling as these problems may be, they're all interesting problems. It is so interesting. that's basically what this whole book is about. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Right. Well, I normally wrap these up with five questions. Okay. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Uh, yeah, I actually, okay. I think I, um, I have a couple of, um, let's see which one would I pick? So I did, I did the Baja 1000, uh, desert race with a guy named Mark Stahl. And that was a fascinating bit of driving because you're in some very strange desert environments and there's this weird, almost talcum powder like silt that we would get stuck in. And it just was full of strange things like in the middle of, um, in the middle of the desert at night, uh, we we had lost, like every light was on in the dash. We'd lost like power. Oh yeah, class eleven beetle. I love those. I got to drive one of those once. I loved it. Um, we we so like we, everything was failing in a car, and we saw this this church in the darkness as we went by in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And Mark remembered years ago because he was he'd run this race before. He did it. Uh, he's the he's like a three time Ironman winner, which means he did it alone, which is insane. Okay. Um, and he remembered this church, and he remembered there's a guy who lived nearby who he called Guadalupe, which is a woman's name, but I don't really understand it works. But he we found the guy's house at like two a.m. and we he woke him up, and we got like tools and lights, and he gave nice. us some beer, and we like fixed the car and then we kept going just because he remembered this guy from like eight years ago the last time he did that race and just by chance he was still there and then we also uh we we got um (laughs) we got stuck so badly in the desert and it was like so late at night we we i was trying to call like the support team and the satellite phone we're getting no signal i actually had to send my wife a message on facebook to see if she could get anyone (laughs) to help us but no one was there and then uh, he we eventually found some locals but the terrain was so uh, uniform he got lost trying to come back but i could hear him so i had to just have him yell with these guys and i had to go find him and scrape arrows into the ground with my feet and then find him back it was absolutely insane i mean that was that's a crazy driving experience I've also driven like in india which is bonkers in a completely different way yes across glaciers and iceland I mean, they're all all kinds of this job affords amazing driving trips so there's a lot to pick from but so do you get point. what percentage of your time are you sort of out doing stuff versus at home doing stuff uh pre-pandemic it was a good amount of time I, pre-pandemic was probably like 25 to 30 percent something like cool. that now it's a, a lot less because yeah. it, trips have slowed down but they're starting to pick back up again so um i don't know where it'll end up but i bet it'll probably get up about a you know probably about a 25 percent yeah, yeah. right now it's hard because of the site i basically just i'm stuck down here mm. a lot just keeping it going but we do have trips planned and that's part of what makes this job amazing is going places like I was in um I was on a mini trip going from uh uh Chile down to the tip of Tierra del Fuego down there Ushuaia uh, and South America and I knew in Chile was the only place in the world they made fiberglass minis and the mini people didn't know about it, but I was walking around because whenever I go on these trips, I try to just wander around the neighborhoods looking at interesting yeah. cars. And I saw one house that had a bunch of cars in the yard and one of them was a mini. Everything was rusty, except the mini I saw was mossy, wasn't rusty, which means it's probably not made of metal. And I right. was looking at it and the person in the house saw me 
And like I started talking to him, asking him, and it was one of these rare fiberglass minis. And then the back, his dad was there and had a shop and used to work at the old mini factory and had one he was restoring. And you just, the encounter, like cars are such a great conduit to meeting mm. people and seeing things. Uh, I don't even remember what the hell the question was at this point. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, like. No, it sounds, yeah, it sounds cool. Travel, yeah. the travel is great, is what I'm saying. Yeah. You learn a lot. Okay. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life. And you're allowed like a five hundred dollar something on the side, so you get two cars technically, but oh, one unlimited cars. value, whatever sports car or anything, and then okay, one's like five hundred dollars, right. like a shit box, and yeah, okay, all right. So my ultimate car, a Tatra T eighty seven. You know the Tatra T eighty seven, no check idea. car, rear engine, air cooled. I've always loved these things. Um, there's not many of them. I've driven one once and they're just astounding cars. They look like refugees from this future that we predicted in the 1930s that never really happened. Yeah, these things. I love oh, these wow. things. So I would, th I, this would be like if I could only have one, I would have a Tatra T87. Um, and then my, uh, my little crap box would be, what would I get? Like maybe. See, 500 bucks. I don't think I can get an old, I would do an old beetle, but I don't think you can get an old beetle anymore for that cheap. So everything's got expensive. Something. Yeah. They're, they're pretty expensive. Now I'd probably get like, um, what would be like a little, little $500 beater I could get. I don't know, my Yugo's pretty much like something a little better than my Yugo maybe for that. Um, maybe a, maybe a Metro, a Geo Metro, <laughs> Geo Metro. And, uh, and the Tatra T87. That seems fair. Sorted. Sweet. Yeah. What What do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What should be worth more? Mm, undervalued. Um, let me think. I, th you know, there's a lot of it. Let's see. So let's see. I, I feel like South America has all kinds of interesting cars that nobody really is aware of in America, like collectible wise. Because okay. so Brazil, for example, had a weird closed economy for a long time. So they made cars that filled like every single niche. So Brazilian Volkswagens, I love like the SP two is like a sports car. The VW SP two is just a fantastic looking car. I don't think they're that well known in America and they're so cool. They're what underpowered, but you can, it's easy enough to get, uh, yeah, more power out of them. This I think cool. these, maybe they go for more in America because they're, so uncommon but I, they're just yeah. not that known and i just think that, i love the look one. of them that's they're super very cool. cool it's basically a vw type 3 under there but i i think maybe some of those like i'd go through like and see what they have in like brazil and argentina yeah yeah, yeah. Like, generally nice. unknown outside of those areas and they're all so cool yeah i, I love it when just searching on like google for let's say a car like this and then you come across maybe it might be like a speed hunters article or you know, various ones where someone's like taken one and pushed it like to the limit in terms of what you can oh, do yeah. with how they look and you're like oh that is they've taken something that looks a bit interesting yeah and made it like seriously cool yeah they yeah they're they're, they're the look of these things is fantastic and the rear engine so that whole front is just a big shallow trunk yeah and the engine's nice. under the floor in the back like they don't really look like what you'd think they were laid out like they're you know they're very much um, a sheep in wolf's clothing mm. like they're yeah they're they're fun that's cool right most interesting car to you at the moment most like modern or like just or... any like what are you googling what are you looking up let's see most interesting car um 
I've been fascinated by, um, God, this is a dipshit answer, but okay, I've been doing a lot of research. I have a plan this year. So, okay, cars prior to 1886 are things I've been really interested in because okay. Mercedes claims that they invented the automobile when they very <laughs> much did not. And I, so I've been kind of on this mission where I want them to rescind that. I don't want them to keep saying it. So yeah. I've been doing a lot of research lately on um, cars from like the really early era. Like there was this early, there was an era of steam vehicles in the UK in the 1830s, like steam buses. Okay. So there's a bunch of cars that were being built in that like 18, 18, like 30 to 1870 period. Bollet, yeah. Leon Bollet made these French cars and he did, ser he serially produced one of them. Was it, was it called like La Mancelle, but it was a steam car and they made like 75 of them. And the fact that you could buy a steam car way back in like 18, wow. you know, in the 1870s just fascinates me. So lately I've been, I've been, that's why I had this, this crazy book here. Cause I've just been going through these like early 1800s, like mm. crazy steam vehicles. And I feel like they don't get enough credit for, how much they actually did for pioneering like automotive traffic. And there's, I don't know, some of them I'm trying to see like, you know, like things that look like this, you know, like real <laughs> clunky ass things, but they're still, they're yeah, cars. Still there's car. no question they're cars. And uh, yeah. So lately that's been kind of my obsession. Like yeah, all these that's things. a good one. And final question, five car garage, unlimited value. Okay. Five car garage. Um, well, I'm going to have my Tatra in there, mm -hmm. my Tatra T87. Uh, I want a, a NSU Row 80. You know the Row 80? No idea. Beautiful car. Rotary engine car. It was so ahead of its time. I really like those. I, I think I'd like a Row 80. How do you spell um, that? R, just NSU RO 80. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're cool. Um, I'd also like... A, a Toyota Sports 800. It's this little Toyota sports car. I love these. I love early Japanese cars. Um, oh, and it, yeah. Did this rev to like crazy amounts? Some yeah, they're yeah, they look flat twin, but they just look like a blast. Like I love, <laughs> I love cars that are you're technically going slow, but it feels like you're going fast. Like that yeah. thing, I think would be a lot of fun. So let's see. So I got to those three. Um, I want a. Oh, I want a good van. I want. Oh, I want one of the Corvair. Uh, vans, the Corvair, like Greenbrier vans, like the, I think they call them a Greenbrier. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can do a Corvair van. You'll see it. Oh yeah. So that looks good. Guys. Yeah. A good Corvair van, like a two tone. Maybe I'll do a camper version of that. Cause I think we'd have a lot of fun with that thing. Oh, and then, you know what I want? I want an amphibious car. I want an amphicar. Cause I think like amphibious cars, I've got a bunch of lakes here and I carry a canoe around on the roof of my yeah. pow. And every time I'm doing it, I think it's a pain in the ass to take the canoe off and do it. And I see people backing in boats. All of that sucks. And like, yeah, just, it doesn't have to be a good boat. I just want to dick around on a lake and I just want to drive in and I've driven amphibious cars before. And that moment where you go from land into water is one of the best motoring experiences yeah. you can have. It's so good. So yeah, I want an amphicar. So yeah, nice. that's a good story. Dr. T87, Row 80, Toyota Sports 800, Corvair van, Amphicar. What, that's a perfect garage right there. That what is, more would you want? That is sweet. That bit, that, that moment when you see someone backing a truck or whatever with a boat into the yeah. water and half the car goes into the sea, yeah. for example. It's never like, good. Like, what are you doing? 
that, that is not what you do with a car. Like salt no. water messes stuff up. <laughs> it's terrible. I've I've had a friend who lost uh, a car in the water because he didn't set the brake <laughs> right, and it just went in, and the tailgate was open, and it was under in minutes. It was just gone, and like it's it's such an ungainly. It's slippery. Like it's the whole yep. process is unpleasant. I feel like there's a market for a good modern amphibious vehicle because it's just fun. And it you're not doing anything like especially on a lake, you don't need that good of a boat. It's just got to float yeah. and you hang out on it and you have fun for 2 hours then you drive away. Cuz that's always the sort of the trade-off, isn't it? Is it a boat that can go on land or is it a land right. vehicle that can be a boat cuz which one's it going to excel at? Technically, um, yeah, they're not going to be that graded either. I think you've got to err on the side of car. Because yeah. I don't, I think for most people, you don't demand that much out of your boat, especially if you're just going on a lake. Like this would be, I, like the ideal one. I think would compete with like those pontoon. It's basically just a patio that floats out there, and people go out there and drink beer, yeah, and yeah, yeah, have fun. That's all it's got to be. So it's just got to be decent enough to get you to and from work and get your groceries. But then you could just drive it right into the water and just putter around and enjoy yourself. That's that's what I want. I saw I mean, one of those things. Close. The other the day, uh, uh, yeah, it, it was like a for the oh, people yeah, that are listening. <laughs> it's like a, a boat with wheels that sort of come down. Um, yeah, I can't. I don't know what it's. That's the OCM other OCM amphibious or something. Look at the, um, Can you drive that on roads? That thing's I, hilarious. I saw it. It was I was down on the sort of south coast of England, and someone yeah. came into a harbour on the thing. It just looks like a rib. And then I saw this wheel go down, and they just drove out onto the side. I think that's pretty much the extent of where you would drive it. So it's literally yeah. just you can then just pull it, drive it out, and then it's out of the water, out right. of the water, and that works quite well. And then you put it in, and the wheels sort of retract. But I thought that was pretty hilarious. You know but, who yeah, should guess- be building these is. So Volkswagen technically made the most amphibious vehicles of anybody during World War II. The Schwimmwagen was like a, a Beetle-based uh, amphibious car. It looks, it's got a Beetle motor and drivetrain. Okay. It's like a little boat. It's spelled like S C H W I M M W A G E N, and they're great. Uh, of course, you know the Nazis used them, so that part's a little a little yeah. dicey for marketing, but. Technically, VW has made more amphibious like passenger cars than anybody. They look pretty and these good. things actually work really well in the water. You can just belly flop them off a off a dock and just tool around in them. <laughs> uh, so if they came out with a, a modern civilian version, I think they would sell a lot of these. If you could buy a Golf that you could drive into a lake, I think they would sell a crap load of these. Things. They would sell some, definitely, not, <laughs> definitely here, not that maybe many. not a crap load. I would but, be yeah. interested. It would yeah, be like the fair. first new car I'd be thinking, huh? Yeah, truly different. Be fun. You'd get some looks driving that down the street. What? Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed uh, enjoyed talking. So thanks yeah, very good. much. And everybody, please visit the Autopian, theautopian.com, yeah. or actually, I think we reserved autopian.com as well. So please, we've got new stories going up every single day. And uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you there in the comments and chat. Sweet. Are you on Instagram? Any of that stuff? Yeah, Instagram. Uh, I think Jason Torch on Instagram. Jason Torchinski on Twitter. You can buy Robot Take the Wheel at finer bookstores or Amazon everywhere. And uh, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Right. Thank you. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.